Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shifting the way we live and work. This is the first interview of season eight, and once again, we will focus on the topic of leadership. Our guest today is Zach Mercurial. He's a researcher, speaker, and consultant specializing in purposeful leadership, meaningful work, and positive organizational psychology. He's also the author of the book, The Invisible Leader, Transform Your Life, Work, and Organization with the Power of Authentic Purpose. In our conversation, Zach discusses the benefits of knowing and living your purpose, the importance of aligning your purpose with your organizations, and how great leaders create mattering. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software. At Inspire, they're committed to helping you achieve superior business results by improving performance, retention, and engagement. Learn more at inspiresoftware.com. Zach, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks, Don. Excited to be here. Let's start out by talking about your background. You live in Colorado. Is that where you grew up or did you grow up someplace else in the U.S.? I was the son of two Italian-Americans, so Italian-American family, and I was the youngest of three brothers. And so grew up in Rhode Island. I did my undergrad in Virginia. I worked in D.C. for a little bit and then migrated west and stayed here. And believe it or not, I majored in print journalism. (laughs) And print journalism was a thing. That was a major back then. Print journalism, like that must have been the last graduating class. Yeah, print journalism (laughs) and uh, intercultural communication, which actually served me well in researching and writing. And a lot of my research is interview based. So actually what I studied, I use a lot, which is rare, I think, for some people. When you were growing up, did you have a mentor who helped influence this career path? So I didn't have a lot of direct mentors. But there is one person that is solely responsible for me even being with you today, and that's a unnamed journalism elective class teacher I had in high school. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, right? My brothers were relatively successful, both had stable paths. And I didn't know, I felt lost. So I was like, do I go into the military? Do I go to trade school? What do I do? I wanted to like buck the trend of going to college and just go out on my own. And she would not let up. She would bring me pamphlets every day. They had pamphlets back then of colleges, of journalism programs, and saying, look at this one, look at this one, look at this one. And there was one that had these beautiful pictures of rolling hills. It wasn't in Rhode Island. And because of her persistence of thinking about me and showing me that attention, I I went to James Madison University, and it was really because she kept showing up every day for me. And... That is why I'm here today. So it's, it's amazing how like really when you think back, and, and this actually is the impetus of a lot of my work, is that there are people who, when they notice you, when they invest in you, when they affirm you, can really alter the trajectory of your life. Without a doubt, I can think to a number of people who had way more faith in me than I had in me. And I'm thinking to myself, what what's going on? Why Why do you think I can do that? And you know, thank goodness they did. You know, from my from my earliest parts of my career in my 20s all the way through, you know, I, I still have mentors today who are influential and who encourage me to do different things and still challenge myself. So that's that's great. And it's an inspirational leadership lesson, right? Like all along the way, you know, one thing I like to invite people to do is think about the first person in your life 
that made you feel like you mattered as a human being? And what did they do? And then ask yourself, you know, do you do those things for other people? Like, so I think about that journalism teacher. As, as I'm thinking about it now, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, am I showing up for somebody, you know, like that every day, you know, like she did? And I, I think those, those, those leadership lessons are like embedded in the everyday people in our lives that really alter us. I'm curious to know if you've always had this interest in purpose and leadership or if there was a trigger point that brought you on this career path? I got sucked into the allure of being successful, right? I was, as most people are educated, we, especially in the West, we mostly educate people for success. We're educating people to learn how to acquire things, achieve things, and get things. Get that starting salary, get that good first job. I mean, when you go to a college fair right now, you'll see lists of the average starting salaries of graduates. And that's how we enter people into like a college setting, for example. And I fell into that. And I remember I chose a, I was print journalism, but I actually chose an advertising career because of a woman who came in and talked about advertising and she had a really nice watch on. And I was allured by the idea of being in advertising, but I wasn't at all connected to why I wanted to be in advertising other than what I got, what I could get, what it would look like. And so I actually got an advertising job out of college and I was actually making good money. I like had all the indicators of success, but the problem is, and it's like designing a building, right? If you design a building and you don't think about the function of the building and you just build it, right? It's like form follows function. And if you do it backwards, it's going to be a mess. And that's usually what happens in life and careers too. If you don't take the time to understand your function, your usefulness, your why, uh, and you just try to build the what, usually there's tension. And I experienced it very quickly, you know? And one of the signals for that was I would go into the office and people on Monday would talk about the days that begin with the letter S, the weekends. And I became really astounded that so many people I talked to were living for two-sevenths of their lives, the days that begin with the letter S, the weekends. And the pivot point for me was when I met a cab driver, and I write about this in my book, who was just the most joyful person I've met. And I had a conversation with him, and I just said, hey, you know, how's it going for you? And this guy lit up. I expected him to hate his job. He started telling me about all the people that he picked up that day that it was people's parents they don't talk to anymore, their friends they don't talk to. And he was just so excited about his job and he got in his cab and I was like, gosh, I want that. How do we do that? And then I spent the next decade or so really trying to understand what creates that mindset, that contribution first mindset. And it's been a powerful journey. When you were talking about the advertising job, how were you defining success then? And then how would you define success now? I was defining success as being perceived as stable and secure by other people around me. You know, my parents wanted desperately for me to be secure financially. And I think that's most of the times, like as parents, what we want or as teachers or professors. But the problem is, is that it's a very tenuous security. Because when you can't do the thing that gives you security, then, then what? I think we saw that in the last two and a half years with the pandemic. And 
I think what I realized was throughout that process was that the ultimate security is a sense of self-worth, right? A sense of a belief that, that you matter. And I think that that transcends career, it transcends job, uh, and it's way more stable. And so now I believe the sense of success is filling a meaningful need, using your unique strengths to make a unique impact wherever you are. And if I had known this when I was in that advertising job, I think I could have made that a real impact on that industry and had been able to craft my work as purposeful because I was around human beings every day. And every day has one thing in common is that you may not be able to achieve what's on your to-do list, but you can every day contribute to another human being. It's always accessible. Uh, And that's how I view success now. What sorts of benefits are there individually and organizationally when you have people who know and live their purpose? A lot of research is beginning to show that purpose isn't out there waiting to be found. It's usually right where you are waiting to be acknowledged. So there's a big difference between having purpose and being purposeful. So like having and knowing your purpose is knowing the contribution you want to make. But being purposeful is contribution-centered thinking, being, and doing where you are right now. Uh, It's the difference between, you know, getting up in the morning and saying, oh, what do I have to do today? And getting up in the morning and saying, how is what I'm going to do today going to impact other people? It's a lens. It's a, it's a mindset. And that's why I think being purposeful is accessible and is the pathway to discovering your purpose. And from a benefits perspective, when we think about purpose as the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists, something's use or usefulness, the crux of why purpose works in the research is self-transcendence, contribution. And studies from UCLA's Semmel Center for Neuroscience finds that there is a part of the brain that actually seems to be hardwired for altruism, for contribution. And we get a reward of, of serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine when we even think about our contribution. So there seems to be something primal, right, biological about our need to contribute. So purpose isn't necessarily some social sciences trend. I think it's very biological. It's very ecological. And when we think about the purpose, our purpose, when we can approach our day from a contribution-centered mindset, we get those benefits. Uh, there's research that indicates the National Institute of, of Health did a longitudinal study um, that indicates that we actually live on average seven years longer when we have a high sense of purpose in life, when we think about our contribution on a daily basis. And one of the reasons for that is that while results and achievements tend to push us for the short term, purpose contribution because the object of our behavior is outside of ourselves, it exerts a pulling force. Um, It can increase resilience, increase job satisfaction. Uh, People who have a sense of purpose are four times more likely to be engaged in work. But I don't want to get lost in the statistics because I want to go back to the fact that it's also seeming to be a survival instinct, that when we don't know our contribution, uh, we tend to psychologically wither. What do you mean by that? Well, when we don't have that pulling force, when we don't have that energizer. For example, you know, one of the presumptions of even just your day is that you matter and your life matters. It's the animating force of getting out of bed, going to the next meeting. That presumption that I and what I do is somehow important is the animating force of everything else. Otherwise, you wouldn't do anything. And when we don't have that belief, 
when we don't believe that we have a contribution, when that fades, that animating force is gone. And that's a lot of what you hear now. You know, Adam Grant had a great article recently on the, the science of languishing, which is, it's not depression, but it's just feeling like a sense of loss of direction, loss of harmonized energy, loss of a reason to carry on. Uh, Victor Frankl, the author of Man's Search for Meaning, has a great formula for this. And he says, despair equals suffering minus meaning. So when I mean psychologically withering, I mean when you're just going through life in its hardship without understanding why and what your contribution is and having something outside yourself. I did a somebody else's podcast this morning. And it's all about risk. An international risk podcast is what it's called. Oh, wow. And after the interview, so he was in Sweden and it was pretty early here in Minneapolis. After the interview, I thought a lot about our discussion and his discussion. And what I was thinking about is what's the risk of people not finding their purpose? And I began to wonder if our political polarization has been uh, widened as a result of people not necessarily having purpose and then moving toward the fringes, you know, whether it's to the right or to the left politically, and that becoming their purpose. And I wonder if you believe that or, or if you have any thoughts on that. I think that people are searching for significance. And a lot of times they're not getting it in their communities at large. They don't see it in their societies. They may not be getting it in schools. I mean, research, there was a study of over 66,000 kids from sixth grade through 12th grade. They asked this sample, how many of you all, you all think that your teacher would notice if you were absent? Uh, over half of that sample indicated that they did not think so. Uh, upwards of 30% of people in worldwide studies indicate they feel lonely. Upwards of 40% of people say they feel forgotten on a daily basis. So people now, I think, are competing for significance, you know, and trying to find that place, whether it's online, whether it's in a sub, very niche group, to, to feel significant. But the other risk, I think, of not having people uh, not even discover their purpose, but believe that they matter is that when someone doesn't believe that they matter, it's very easy for nothing to matter, right? So it's very easy for to not get involved in, in our communities. It's very easy to not get involved in our, our real relationships. It's very easy to not pursue change when you don't believe that you matter. So I really think that mattering comes first. I mean, and I, th I actually think it's the, it's the epidemic within the pandemic, you know, that's been revealed over the last two and a half years that uh, people are demanding dignity and they'll go to the fringe to find it. You've said there's a compelling purpose for every job. I couldn't agree more. I don't care what you're doing. If an organization has a job for you, there's purpose behind it. Now, whether you or your leader are reinforcing that, that is a, a critical point. And so what would you say to somebody who says, my job's meaningless. It's a dead-end job. There's, there's nothing here for me. So for someone who's feeling like they have a dead-end job or it's, or it's meaninglessness, one of the questions that I ask people is, one, do you have strengths? And most of the time they say yes. And two, will you see people today? <laughs> will you interact with people? 
If they say yes, I say then then inevitably your job has purpose because you can use your strengths to contribute to other people. And you know when the Suez Canal was blocked by that big ship earlier a couple of years ago, right? There's this great photo where there's this singular backhoe digger, right? Digging and digging at it. And it was blocking up like global trade routes. And I was just thinking that this guy, right, who is this operator of this backhoe is responsible for global trade right now, resuming. And this is what I mean by you can't not matter. Like you are a part of a bigger system and everything that you do, you put inputs into the system. And I will say this, this is something I tell my college seniors all the time that I teach is that, is that no job exists to pay you, right? No good hiring managers like, hey, let me create a job to give somebody more of our money. Every job, right, exists to solve a human problem. The result is you get paid. One of the things I've learned in my research with janitors, um, we did a year and a half study and I embedded myself with a group of eight janitors at a university, is that purpose is not pleasurable. One of the things that I think is eroding our workforce is this false notion that a job should be pleasurable, right? But, you know, staying up with my kid while they're sick all night is not pleasurable, but it is purposeful. And one of the janitors said to me, my favorite thing about my job is when I have to clean the bathrooms in the dormitories on a Monday morning after the weekend. And I asked, I said, what, what do you mean? And she goes, because it's the thing I hate most. So I have to say to myself, I'm cleaning this bathroom so that these kids don't get sick. So what we find is that if you're in a job right now and you feel like it's a dead end job, find your so that, add that to the end of this. I'm doing this task so that what, and you will find purpose there. When I used to do a lot more public speaking, I would talk about meaning and purpose. And I would use an example about a janitor and how the manager matters in this, in this. So if the manager says, you know, your job is to mop the hall and empty the garbage, I'm probably not going to be motivated to do that. But if the manager says you're so important because you keep us safe and healthy, wow, that's way more motivating. I'm, I'm going to attack my job. I, I keep all of our students and all of our faculty safe and healthy in this environment. That's my job. That's important. You know, I, I need to show up to work on Monday. Yeah, you know, when people feel replaceable, they will act replaceable. Some of the business leaders that I've talked to, like, are surprised at the great resignation, but they've said things, especially in manufacturing, like, we just can't hire people. They'll just go somewhere else, right? When you treat people as just some labor tool that'll just move around and they're just an object, then people will feel replaceable. But when people feel irreplaceable, and I think this is what you're getting at, they will act irreplaceable. They'll show up, they'll commit. It's like um, if I were to ask you, hey, do you want to come to a dinner party tomorrow? And you're like, yeah, I'll come. But then tomorrow morning you wake up and you're like, I don't really want to go. It's pretty easy to get out of that, right? But if I was like, hey, Don, do you want to come to this dinner party tomorrow? I need you to bring dessert. And then you wake up tomorrow and you're like, I don't really want to go, but Zach needs me to bring dessert. That psychologically is how making sure that people feel and know the purpose in their work works to inspire commitment and engagement. So your story is right on. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about this taxi driver and how he was 
really thriving and in his environment and loving his job. How do we get more people there? How do we get more people to just love in a job that might seem dangerous or might seem uh, like it doesn't have a purpose? How do we get them to love their work? I think the good question here is how do we create the conditions where it's as easy as possible for people to see exactly how their tasks every day and how their strengths that they bring into the work make a difference. And so one of the things that I say is, is good leaders tell people that they matter. A lot of organizations tell people that they matter, but great leaders have the skill set to show people exactly how they matter. And a couple of ways to do that are one, to make sure that people have regular evidence of their significance. If in onboarding you say, hey, you know, hey, welcome, you're a janitor at the university. You are here to be part of the educational fabric of the university. And then you never hear a story of how your cleaning work made a difference for a student in your five years being there. It's very easy to start believing that your work doesn't matter. So leaders, I think, are purveyors of meaning. Leaders can create the conditions and the evidence of people's significance. So regularly routinely and authentically collecting and telling stories of the work's impact is profound. Uh, affirming people, that janitor I talked to, her name was Ellen, and she said that her favorite part of the job was cleaning these bathrooms, and I was just shocked. But you, you're right, it goes back to the leader because she said to me in her first week on the job, she was miserable. She said that it was the only job that would hire her. She was near homelessness when she got this job. She was saying to herself, I wish I could have done something more with my life. I'm just a janitor. And she said she had a supervisor that pulled her into a break room and pulled out a dictionary and defined the word custodian for her as a person responsible for looking after a building and everyone in it. Now, that short act of showing her the evidence of her significance shifted her belief system from I'm just a janitor to I'm cleaning this bathroom so that these kids don't get sick. So making sure that you're linking people's everyday work to its inevitable impact and providing that evidence of significance through affirmation is absolutely a critical skill. Leaders need to make sure people have regular evidence of their significance. You said there were two things. Did you mention the second thing? Story collecting and storytelling. So making sure you're regularly sharing evidence of the work's impact. But then the second is making sure that people feel individually affirmed through understanding how their unique gifts make a unique impact. So one of the, I mean, one of the practices that you could do immediately is anytime you say thank you or good job to somebody, which probably every listener does, go a step further and show them the difference that they make. If I'm gonna say, hey, thanks Don for having me on the podcast, instead of that I can say, hey, Don, you know, when we were on that podcast yesterday, you were incredibly warm and welcoming. And that made me really inspired to share these practices that could go out and alter the trajectory of someone's life. So thank you for having me on. Share and know people's unique strengths, name those unique gifts, and then show them how they make a unique impact as well. And I think that that gets at the macro level of making sure people know the work's impact but then the micro level of making sure people know their unique impact, which helps to create an environment where it's easier for them to understand and believe that they have purpose, where their strengths make a unique impact. When you think about an individual's purpose and their strengths and understanding their self-worth, how important is it to align our purpose with the purpose of the organization where you work? So I think it's important for people to connect what they're doing 
to the bigger purpose. You know, one of my favorite research studies was was uh, by Andrew Carton at the Wharton School, and he did a study on NASA going to the moon. And there's that great story of that's often told of John F. Kennedy going to give a speech, and he goes into a mop closet. He thought it was a green room. He sees a janitor and says, hey, what are you doing here? And the janitor says, oh, I'm putting a person on the moon. And this was a janitor who was at a center that was working on the Apollo missions. But one of the, the little known facts of that time that Andrew Carton discovered through analyzing archives was that in NASA facilities, because this mission of putting a human on the moon by the end of the decade was so giant and big, he found that on the blackboards, NASA managers had put ladders to the moon where they would connect people's tasks to tangible, measurable objectives, to higher order measurable objectives that would ultimately put a person on the moon by the end of the decade. We've since started calling this technique laddering to make sure that that bigger purpose becomes real in people's work. So I'm more of a pragmatic, practical person when it comes to that, that it's very difficult to have people's all of their life purposes, which are like our fingerprints, connect to the organization's purpose. But what we can do is link people's unique gifts, their unique strengths, the unique impact they have on the people around them, and ladder that up to the bigger organization's purpose. You wrote a book called The Invisible Leader. What is invisible leadership? Mary Parker Follette was a scholar. And in the 1920s, she had this great quote that says, leaders and followers are both following the invisible leader, the common purpose. Invisible leadership is when a common shared sense of purpose becomes the ultimate boss in the organization. It's the ultimate boss of decision-making. It's the ultimate boss of how the work gets done. It's that pulling force. It's that invisible thread. Like there's an invisible leader. There's a purpose that tied you and I together. We don't know each other. We never met in person, right? But there's some tie that pulled us together. There's a force. So that force is invisible, it is that common purpose, you know, also known as this idea of invisible leadership. I liken it to, there's an idea in the military called leader's intent, right? When your leader is not there, when your leader is not on the battlefield, uh, the question is, is what would my leader have me do? And I think that invisible leadership asks the question, what would our purpose have us do? When a leader embraces this idea of the invisible leader, the common purpose, it's essentially to get your ego out of the way and let the contribution take over. Let the shared contribution take over as the pulling force in the organization. A lot of the problems that we have today, really big problems, war and climate change, racial injustice, they seem so daunting. And, and I think this is often why people might feel like they don't matter is because these are huge problems to solve. But how can somebody align their purpose with solutions to these problems without feeling overwhelmed or outmatched? Does that make sense? Or is that even the right way to think about this? There's this phenomenon called purpose anxiety. You get all of this advice to go find your purpose. And that can produce at times a lot of anxiety where we freeze. Like, how am I supposed to find my purpose? And that's why I love the approach of shifting from that to being purposeful in my everyday. One of the questions that I ask people a lot is, do you extract energy or do you regenerate energy on a daily basis? In the email you send, um, in the conversation with your kid or your spouse or your partner, in the community around you, 
focusing on how you can use your unique strengths to regenerate energy versus extract energy from the community around you, I think is what will help us move forward. I also think one of the most accessible things we can do to solve any of these problems is to make sure the people around us know that they matter. And one of the most accessible ways to improve community, societal, and world well-being, in my opinion, is to make sure people around us feel noticed, that we see them, that we take an authentic interest in them. You know, do you know your FedEx driver's last name? Do you know what their interests are? Your barista, do you know what their dreams are, their hopes are? Do you know what they struggle with? When we can notice people and see people, it's powerful. I think making sure people feel affirmed around us, making sure that you're regularly sharing with people what their unique gifts are, and then making sure people feel needed. And this goes back to what we were talking about before, the power of that uh, statement, you know, if it wasn't for you. Do the people in your life, in your everyday routine, know that they are indispensable to your life? Because when, pe- when we start building that mattering capital, and then we're forced as humanity to solve these big problems, uh, I think that is what is the, the impetus that's missing in a lot of these issues, is the community creation of this foundation that I do matter and that I have the evidence of my significance. A lot of the conversation around climate change is focused on blame. And you know, it, it, this matters. And, and then that to me is divisive, particularly younger people saying, well, your generation caused this. Yeah, I know this is a problem. And I know that we need to work together in order to solve it. It does. It's not productive to say, you know, because I'm a certain age and have lived a certain life and we really irresponsibly treated our planet. That's not productive. So that, you know, that that's the first thing is like, yeah, say it matters, but say collectively that we can solve it. I agree because purposeful people tend not to talk about who and what they're against, they tend to invite people into who and what they're for. Um, There's a big difference between being an adversary and being an advocate. You know, when you're an adversary, you're, it's usually a blame, shame, which never produces long-term action. I don't think many human beings have ever been motivated into long-term action by being shamed or blamed, as you said. But when we can be inspired by being having our perspective be value, valued, but then have others share their purpose with us of, of what they envision the world could be like for everybody, including you, who may be not on my side uh, because of this world we could create. I think that's like, as you said, where we move the needle and how purpose and being purposeful fits in versus being an adversary. One of the things that I, I did for probably 10 or 15 years, uh, during my career is make Thanksgiving calls. And I'd make about a hundred phone calls on Thanksgiving. And I would start at six in the morning, I'd go to the gym. And then by, by seven 30, I was at my desk making phone calls. I'd call all the employees at my company. Just, you know, by the end, it was about 40 people, all our clients, friends, family. And I would make this call and I would say why they mattered to me over the last year. And I haven't done it for probably certainly since I've been a father, which is the past seven years. And it's the thing that people mention the most. I really miss those phone calls. Thank you for making those phone calls. When they see me, you know, they're just like, you did that on on your Thanksgiving, you know, that meant so much to me. 
helping them understand that they mattered. And also I would tie it to, you know, the life that I'm leading right now, because you are a part of my company, because you decided to be my client because this and that. Oh my gosh, people love it. In fact, some people would say, I have one saved voicemail and it's your Thanksgiving message from 2008 or something like that. If you want to see the power of mattering, when you're in a bathroom at an airport and there's a custodian in there, usually there will be, go up to him and say, hey, I just want to thank you for what you do and watch what happens. You probably, it'll probably be startling because if you'll notice, everybody just shuffles by those people. But we shuffle by each other a lot. And I think that what's happened is that what we've done by shuffling past each other, by not acknowledging our interdependence, is that we've depleted the very resource we need to solve these problems, which is people's voices. Why would I share my voice if I feel like I'm invisible in my job where I spend 35% of my waking life? Think about that person. We'll go back to the top, right? Think about the person in your life who changed the trajectory of your life thing. I mean, you could be that person today for somebody. And I think we need more of that. The most beautiful, warmest smiles I've ever gotten often come from homeless people. You say hi to them and you smile and you genuinely notice them. My gosh, like that's so rare to them. And, and they're so happy to return that. And, uh, just think about what you were saying about mattering earlier. Like this person, this other person sees me, sees me as a human, sees me not as a nuisance or, or whatever. So, I mean, like, like the climate change conversation or like the war, like war, all of these things that are going on, you know, when we're trying to make change with people, do we see the people that we're trying to make change with, or do we see the people that we're trying to bring up, bring on to our purpose first? I mean, have, do we acknowledge them? Do we affirm that they are? You know, they may have different views from us, but they're, they are irreplaceable human beings living lives as vivid and complex as our own, right? And th that takes a, a purposeful perspective and it's relatively missing. And what tends to happen after upheaval events like this, the research shows is that there's actually a collective search for significance that tends to happen. Um, there's a bunch of things going on right now. People are reflecting on the quality of their jobs, their lives. There's rising calls for social justice, rightfully so that are in the mainstream conversation. We have unemployed people returning to work. We have people more than ever that have job plus health insecurity. And all of these things I think are coming together right now for this big question of why me, why here, why now? And one of the things that I think we can do as leaders, and I mean leaders, anybody who influences another human being, is to help people answer that question. Um, because you can get a, get a collective meaning deficit again, which is, it gets back to that idea, if that happens when people don't believe they matter, it's hard for anything to matter for them. Do you personally have a clearly defined written down purpose? I did, uh, and then it changed a few years ago. And it changed because I was working with a coach and I was, um, I was like in the process of doing a, uh, preparing a TED talk, didn't end up getting selected. But I remember saying, you know, I don't really have a tragic story to tell. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think anybody would really want to hear from me. And he said, that's your tragic story. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I want you to dig into that. Why you think you need to prove your significance? And I started thinking back to all of this work I did almost exploded into my mind that five-year-old kid with the tin foil on his bike, driving up the road by himself, searching for significance, feeling a little bit invisible myself. And like, I didn't get a lot of attention. 
or people didn't notice me. And I was like, oh my gosh, everything that I'm doing is trying to be what my five-year-old self needed. And so my purpose in, in my research and my work on mattering and my, my work on purpose and my work with leaders and organizations is to help people realize their own significance and to help people really realize that they can't not matter, whether it's my kids, whether it's my neighbor, whether it's uh, my friends, uh, whether it's the CEOs I work with or the organizations I work with. I mean, there's nothing more powerful than when a human being really believes that they matter, that they're significant. And it all goes back to that five-year-old kid, right? And, like, uh, and I think that that's, and again, that happened two years ago and I'm, I study purpose. So my purpose has changed. And that's something everybody should understand listening to this podcast is that purpose is not found one time. It's crafted over time through regular reflections on how, when, and where your unique gifts make a unique impact. Zach, I want to close on one final area. And that is, you've actually changed my life. And because we're, we're, well, you're a young father, I'm a father of young children. And so our, ch- our children are around the same age. And I saw you speak one time. And you said that you changed the questions that you asked your children. You didn't ask them how their day was. And so I would like you to talk about the questions you asked your children, because I think this is really important. And you changed my life because I started to ask my children the same questions that you asked yours. Questions are unbelievably powerful. And the questions we ask others direct what people think about and pay attention to, which directly results their actions. So I was picking up my kid from school, preschool, and I was asking him terrible questions. What did you do today? Follow the questions that you ask to their ends and, and you'll find how bad some of our questions are. All I would have ever gotten was a list of the stuff that he did. Or one that I hear all the time is, how are you? Right? If someone asks me how I am, I mean, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. I don't even know where I am half the time. How am I? I can't tell you. So I just say, good, you. But instead, like, what has your attention right now? Uh, so are we asking questions that matter? And I started shifting with my preschooler. I started asking two new questions. Instead of what did you do today or how was your day? I started asking who did you help today and who helped you today? And after a week of asking that question, he came into my car one day and he said, oh, daddy, I can't think of who helped me today. I'm going to have to look harder tomorrow. And when I think about the primal need, the almost survival instinct to contribute and to matter, I didn't really realize this at the time, but I was directing his attention on the ultimate primal pulling force of human beings, which is contribution. And he came alive. I learned more about him in two days than I did in six months, about what he was proud of, who he helped, who his friends were. And it's powerful. So I'm glad you brought that up. But that's another practice actually leaders can take away is whether you're a parent, a teacher, CEO, what questions do you ask people? Do you direct their attention to what matters? The first question is, if you say, who helped you today, then you start to help them understand that they should be appreciative. Somebody is helping them and to acknowledge that. And the second thing is, at a very early age, they understand that they do help people. Yeah, you're you're giving them the evidence. Absolutely. By the question that you have the capacity to help people right now in preschool. So it goes back to that evidence. That's a practice. That's a practice of creating that evidence of people's significance. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? A lot of times when I'm on podcasts or when I talk about this stuff, some people will say to me that, well, it sounds easy, right? You just shift your way of thinking. And I think it's really important 
for people to understand that, that this is work. You know, our society wants us to be focused on what we acquire and what we achieve. And then it's, there's an economic reason for that, right? We need to buy stuff to help us do that. And so it's, it, there's a lot of things pulling us away from believing that we matter and that believing that we have significance and being purposeful, being contribution-centered when everything's focused on self-help and self-growth and personal development, right? And one of the things that I think that's important for people to know is that it's a habit, it's a practice. That while like creating mattering for someone else may seem like common sense, I think it was Stephen Covey who said common sense is not always common practice. It's not common practice. So one of the things that I encourage after you listen to a podcast like this, and you may think, oh, that purpose guy is like, got everything figured out. I don't. Every single day, I have to catch myself falling into achievement-oriented thinking. Uh, one of the things I write to myself every morning is, um, and the answer to that question, how is what I'm going to do today going to impact other people? And then I write down people's names that I'm going to meet with. And I think about their lives and their families and their friends. And even if it's someone I disagree with or have to say no to, but that takes work. That's a habit. So what is one to two habits you can take away to start this work of being purposeful? And so I just want to make that clear that this is not easy. It's not a one-time fix. It's a sort of lifetime of habits. And we don't really ever arrive at this. It's, it, it takes work. As one of my mentors says, progress, not perfection. So what are you going to do tomorrow as a result of listening today? Oh, so great. Zach, I really appreciate your time today and your wisdom. Thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We'll be back next week with another leadership interview. This time I sit down with U.S. Navy Admiral Ron Perrette. Thank you again to Inspire Software for sponsoring this episode. Thanks also to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.